Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Fugue for Thought, the podcast. I'm Alan, and in today's episode, uh, I'm very excited to share an experience, kind of, that I had that prompted the discussion that I'll be having with my guest today. Um, this past summer, um, I was able to attend a concert staging of the opera, Verdi's opera, Otello. And it was a concert staging because our opera house in Taipei is under renovation. And so uh, we have one annual opera staging every year. But we kind of, I felt a little bit this year like we didn't get the full, or we weren't going to get the full thing because it was in the concert hall. However, I was wrong. Uh, it was a wonderful staging, phenomenal performance from the orchestra, from the performers, and I managed to get in touch with the stage director, one Mary Birnbaum. Um, as a matter of fact, actually, one of the performers found the concert review that I wrote, and she emailed me about it. I believe was how it worked. And in any case, I figured I would love to chat a little bit with her about what it's like to do opera. Um, she's an American. She came to Asia to stage an Italian opera in Asia with performers and people from all over the world. And and I wanted to hear about her background, about her experience with um, working with an orchestra that I'm very familiar with, and also about how her background, uh, which you will hear about shortly, kind of influences or informs how it is that she prepares uh, to do a staging like she did for us this past summer. So we welcome Mary Birnbaum to the show. I want you to pay special attention to some of the things that Mary talks about towards the end of this episode, because it really got me thinking about a series that I've already started to do about getting new people into the concert hall and overcoming maybe some of the misconceptions or um, misunderstandings of what it's like to go and enjoy classical music. She has some very uh, in intelligent and eloquent things to say about how people can think of music and, and opera uh, and how important it is. And so um, stay tuned for that. I also want to say thank you to Zencaster. Um, uh, not a sponsor, but I use Zencaster uh, for much of this kind of two-way audio because I've never actually sat in the same physical space with any of my guests. Um, I love their service, and they help me to do what I'm doing. So uh, thanks to them, and let's get started. Mary Birnbaum, how are you? I'm so well. Thank you so much, Alan. It's so lovely to talk to you. It was very lovely to see your work. This was now about um, three three months ago, yeah? In yeah. this past summer, in July. Yeah, in July in at the National Symphony Orchestra um, in a semi-staged, basically staged version of Otello by Verdi, Joe Green. And um, yeah, yeah. How, and, and so how did you get um, involved with, with that from like 9,000 miles away? Well, it's, it's such a funny thing how jobs happen. And it really does go to show you that um, when you're meant to do something, you're, you know, it's, 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 there's, there's a destiny element involved in it. So a couple of years ago, I had a wonderful meeting with a Korean agent named Kevin Park, who ends up... Uh, He's also Xiao Cha Lu's agent, Maestro Lu. Um, oh. And he didn't know my work really. He didn't, he, we had a wonderful conversation and he said, you know, they're looking for someone to do Otello in Taipei, in Taiwan. And I 
Um, and I said, oh, that's, that's great. I mean, I've never done, at that point, I had never directed any Verdi. I had assisted on a production of Falstaff, uh, that was in New York at Juilliard. And, um, I, I knew that I loved his, his writing and his composition, but I didn't, I didn't quite know that Otello is the perfect piece yet, <laughs> uh, which I was about to find out. Um, and Kevin said, you know, I, I'll put your name in. We'll see if it, it can work out. And I said, okay, great, great. You know, not expecting it to come to anything. And I had been, meanwhile, I had been to um, China, to Hong Kong and, and um, Shanghai uh, in college. I taught English there. Oh, wow. Months. And it was one of those experiences that has stayed with me for so long because I just found it to be there's something about uh, the East that is very spiritual and um, Im- just important to know about for me. Just, I feel so connected um, to Asia. I, d- I don't know why. I can't explain it. There's no, I have no um, cultural lineage at all that would suggest that that's, you know, in, in me. But first, right. then I just get along, I get along really well um, with uh, both Chinese and Taiwanese people. I love the food. I love the culture. I love how I can't read anything. I think that might be a thing thing for me. Um, I love the language, the way it's the languages, the way they sound. Yeah, everything about it is so great. So I was hoping I was praying in the back. That's all to say I was praying that it would work out. Um, uh, And it did weirdly. So um, I was free. Uh, They were still they were still doing the show. And we started having these wonderful conversations. The staff of the orchestra, who is, I mean, as you as you probably know, um, are the most efficient and brilliant people ever. And to, I've never been in a process where they've been okay with loading in and out the set. I think it was like four times. Um, oh, wow. It was just an incredible. I mean, I, my first props meeting, and this almost never happens in a semi-stage production. You show up and you say, you know, I want flat. I want orchids. I want white orchids. They're like, do you want this kind of white or- white orchid or that kind of white orchid? And that is just, I mean, it's unprecedented. So I was just in heaven, and um, doing the show was was so fabulous. And I really learned that it is the perfect opera. It's such a good opera, uh, and it really is amazing conductor. So it was. Does that sort of answer your question? I think that's that's how it came. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and and I, I'm just realizing through like experiences like this and from other things, chatting with folks in the orchestra, like how early this kind of stuff yeah. gets going. Like this is not a this is not. A, I mean, even for, I think for a lot of people. Uh, when they see an orchestra release something for the whole season, right? In the fall, we have the whole season planned up until the spring of the following year. People think, oh, well, like they spent the summer kind of like rounding that out. Well, no, like those soloists were like maybe years ahead in planning. Yeah. And then I, I had all of those things. contract two years before the show. Um, so it was on my calendar. I really, we didn't start real work. I started preparation because I, I need a lot of time. I'm just someone who needs to read things over and over and over again. Um, and listen sure. to them a lot. Um, I started preparation about a year out and then we started all together with the designers and everything, probably about seven months, uh, February, um, of 2016. So it was actually, that part was actually relatively short and it felt like we were getting stuff done on a pretty um, weekly level. And it seemed like my Sherlu loves opera so much that 
He does. A lot, yeah. So, um, but those designers are fabulous, and they were so productive. And and Kevin, the lighting designer, basically doesn't speak English. We we communicated in um, in grunts and sort of like right. head nods of like, good, good, and had two amazing translators too. Um, but he, I mean, it, he's just such a pro that he made it look so stunning and did everything I wanted him to do. Um, and more, you know, of his own ideas. So it was really, really fabulous. And actually I think that is the most in today's day and age, the idea of opera as a place where cultures can cross and it's okay to have an American director and a Canadian chorus master and a Taiwanese cast and, uh, um, you know, a, a Russian Yago, and uh, it's so powerful. Performing an Italian piece. Oh, performing an Italian piece. <laughs> it's, that's so powerful. And if we can, I mean, having conversations across culture is, I think, what music does best. And so that experience really typified why I'm in this. And, I mean, it was just very profound, I think. And I think, you know, you can feel it from... Uh, that the depth of the conversation, I think, can be felt from the audience. So, um, I went to the Met to see Tristan and Isolde last night, and they, they had set it in on a battleship. And unclear what time really, I mean, what time period it really was. I'm not, it was okay. I mean, the singers were insanely great, um, but... The production was it. Thomas Hampson was he on that? No, no. It was um, Renee Papa was the uh, King Mark, um, but it was okay. Renee Papa, Stuart Skelton, and uh, Nina Stemma. So it was really good, good singing all around. Um, but yeah, I was asking myself, what is the point of doing this story? Why are we, you know, what? Wh- why do we? Why do we take the time and energy and effort and? Um, for me, you know, because it feels relatively easy to get five singers in a room to me. Um, it's more like, how do we rally this entire orchestra of people and, you know, and get the set built and do all the things that's necessary to, like, really tell a story in space, an ephemeral story at that. And I think right. the answer is really, I think the answer is really in this idea of shared culture and shared history and human kind of, not that it's, not that it has to be artifact, right? Not that it has to be a museum piece, but that we're inciting a conversation about culture and about right. what humans do and who they are. And the ability to make music is, you know, in the Maslow's needs hierarchy. It's not, right. you know, almost purely for enjoyment or fun. There's some kind of, uh, there, there's some kind of poetic, um, necessity to it but it's definitely like between uh, food water and music you to stay alive you might not choose music although it might be way more fun to stay alive if you did um well said yeah yeah there's this amazing quote actually in an ann bogart do you know ann bogart the director she's so brilliant she runs the city company in new york s-i-t-i um but uh they travel a lot and they worked a lot with um suzuki in japan Okay. The Suzuki method, which is yeah. also, um, it's a like a lot about stomping and kind of being physically present and creating kinetic kind of exactly yeah. So um, so she says she starts her book, her most recent book about acting uh, out, which uh, with a quote about in a particular tribe in Africa, the function of the poet was to lead the tribe to water. 
And I just love the oh, well. idea of um, the function of the arts is to remind us what's essential. It's not necessarily to be what's essential, but it's to remind us that we all share the same things. We share. Oh, well. And in Otello, there's, the themes are so, I mean, deeply, deeply human. Um, the theme of envy and the theme of, um, you know, falling in love with somebody and trusting them. And the theme of believing, believing your feelings so much that they become real, which I think is a really compelling thing. So, and, and there's a reason these stories have persisted for so long. It's not to say we can right. tell these stories, but, you know, that's the idea. Right, but that's, it's also, like you said, it's the exact reason why uh, you can take a, an opera from, from Mozart or Haydn or Wagner, whoever, from 100, 200 years ago, and perform it in a culture like here in Asia that doesn't have that kind of culture like you would have in Vienna or other places. Right. And it still resonates because it's just part of the it's part of the human existence of of those kinds of things. Totally, and it actually might. And the hope, I think, for me at least, as a director and somebody who's working with these texts over and over again, is that the group of people in the room enliven the conversation, and they bring their own. I mean, talking to um, some of the Taiwanese singers about the situations that the characters were in. Um, was very different from talking to the Russian or talking to, you know, or even talking to me. You know? Sure. It's like everyone has their own, their own take on what the story is. And I think where all those stories meet is the most interesting one. And that's the one that, I mean, opera, which has to be, which is intercultural just by the nature of the importance of the musical language, which is an international language. Um, right is a great it's a the perfect place for those conversations to happen you know opera was something that was a little bit difficult for me to get into because i usually listen to music on the go i mean even if i'm focused listening i'm listening not watching and for an opera you want to be there and see it and experience it and you probably need subtitles so um i, I talked a little bit with mary about my first experience seeing a fully staged opera as beethoven's fidelio and that led to a little more discussion about the impact that opera has on people and about a specific aspect of her staging of Otello here in Taipei. As a, as a form, as a, as a musical form, um, it was something that I had kind of come a little bit late to from the standpoint of, you know, it's much easier to put on a, a symphony or a, a um, a Mozart piano concerto and you have 30, 40, 50 people on stage and mm -hmm. kind of, you know, it's not nearly as complex as an opera. The one of, it has to be kind of one of the most complete forms of art. I mean, it's stage, it's music, it's acting, it's everything. Yeah. That was what Wagner said, right? It's, it's all, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's art. I mean, it's visual art too, because you kind of can't get away without having a, some sort of, um, simulacrum of the music. I think really good opera directing makes you see the music um, and and therefore a total synesthesia is possible. The, I have more praise for the Taiwanese designers, which is that I think they are more comfortable working in abstraction than most American designers I know. Really? Yes. It is it was very amazing um, to see how they went into the realm of the um, symbolic. 
so easily. Mm -hmm. And particularly that projection designer, whose his name is Ethan Wang, um, is really, really special and very gifted at figuring out what the essence of a scene is, the sort of spiritual essence of it, and then putting, um, putting that on stage. Nothing was literal about the work together, which was great. It was perfect, like enough to tell a story, but nothing that adhered too strongly to now it's in the garden. Now it's in the, you know. Right. Well, it's so funny because actually I was, I was speaking with a friend just uh, a few hours ago and I asked, I asked him, I said, like, is there anything that you specifically like to know? Because he was at one of the performances and he said, I want to know about the projection. Like, um, yeah. Because, because it was a thing. At first, I didn't really even actually, I mean, you notice that it's hanging there. Right. But you don't notice that it's doing things right. and it was it was such an integral part of of the whole thing without being intrusive or distracting which was so intentional yeah i'm glad that you say that um so we had this idea Huey chen the set designer had who actually was educated in new york at nyu so she's oh, wow. incredible at english and you know she's basically a native and um we had like so many conversations and uh about what we wanted how even though it's simple that we wanted the set to have a little, a couple levels and exactly how we wanted the shape to be. And she was very influenced by Richard Serra's work, the architect. Um, mm -hmm. And particularly his work with massive kind of cylindrical sculptures, because she felt like they were very, um, they, they were very strong, but also uh, there was a privacy about them that we were both really interested in having for, um, for this this particular story, this idea that like there would be there there are so many scenes where they have to be having private conversations and how do we do right. that in an open floor plan? Um, so the other thing that we latched onto was this idea of a, a sail of a ship, um, which is basically what the projection screen was. Uh, with right. The idea of the ship's sail that we get and and there's this whole theme throughout the show of. Uh, the idea of V-E-L, vel, which is the uh -huh. idea of revealing in, in Italian. It's also the idea of a fabric, a handkerchief, like an old um, an old word for a handkerchief is a vel. Um, the first thing we hear in the show is una vela, which is the sail of the ship. Yep. So that we have this, this idea awesome. of fabric that's constantly obscuring kind of what we're seeing in front of us or then all, like also revealing. Um and so we kind of embraced that idea to get to this level of, of what the projections actually were and when they were important. And we decided that the progression of the projections, that they started out pretty literal. We have a, like a literal shipwreck, you know, happening on the screen. We see water. Um, and then we go in Act 3, after we come back from intermission, we started to go into a more warped, as Otello was seeing, weird warped thing. Mm -hmm. So were we. And then the final scene, of course, we went into the bedroom of Desdemona and we did live feed um, reflection from what was on. Yeah, that was incredible. We had this idea that like um, when humans take on uh, the role of God, when they influence. Um, so it was like from nature to human nature is, a, is an easy way of saying what it was. It was very, that was very surreal. It was cool. amazing. I thought that was, I was a little worried that it wouldn't work. Um, and Ethan is so smart that it totally worked. And it was very beautiful, I thought, with particularly with the costumes we ended up with, which were a group collaboration. <laughs>
And I think Mary had some specific challenges with working in this space um, that she produced Otello because it was not in uh, the opera house or a, a space that would usually have a pit and a full stage. It was in the concert hall. And so I thought that the use of space um, and, and making it all come to life was an interesting situation, but it was very successful. You know, or much earlier than it was, it would have been more than a year ago from from this point um, that we knew that Otello was going to happen. But they also kind of said, like, it's not a full staging because the opera house is under renovation. But don't worry, it'll still be amazing. We promise. <laughs> and kind of the the initial response was like, you know, we don't get a lot of opera here, and to have it not in the actual op, you know, the the theater is a little disappointing. It's a little, you know, unfortunate. But totally. It was not. It was not. But just a few minutes into our Otello, that you know, someone comes running out from the back of the audience up to the stage. Yeah. Um, and and that kind of instant breaking of the fourth wall kind of turned the whole concert hall into this into this space that was you know being used. Um, and it's that the whole willful suspension of disbelief that there was very actually very little on the stage. Yeah. Um, but you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have noticed it. I mean, it was, it was so much to the point that it was so interactive. You had, you know, everyone had their goblets. Then there was the handkerchief, kind of the key things. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so lovely. Goblets were so cool. Yeah. Oh, cool. Cool. I mean, the chorus is always, particularly when the chorus can only stand still, I find that it can be a really effective and wonderful thing. So sometimes with these semi-stage things, I say that my job is to create chaos because what doesn't happen in a normal symphony concert is chaos. So things like having somebody enter from the back of the hall, which of course he has to enter from the outside world. You know, we have to feel like right from somewhere outsider from the very beginning when we first see him. Um, and, uh, and then having the chorus pass around cups and really relate to each other. I feel like makes it a, makes it an event versus making it, um, and, and changes the space into the set. So you don't miss it, really. No, and they 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 did they interacted, they passed things around, and that that was to me it was a utilization of 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 the entire. You know, I actually I think back now, and I don't even remember seeing the orchestra on stage. Oh, cool! That's the best. That's great. Like I just I'm just literally now looking back and thinking like, wait a minute, there had to have been a space where they because. They took up space and then the chorus took up space, you know, standing in the back. But you don't kind of realize it because of, you know, what else is going on and kind of the focus of, of everything. No, it was phenomenal. Totally. Totally. Um, yeah. It always fascinates me or it kind of excites me to find uh, music people, professionals like Mary or in a previous episode uh, with Julie Camperini of folks who have a background similar to mine and how that informs what it is that they're doing musically. So a background in linguistics or in English or literature or something like that, I think is very interesting and it has clear connections with what it is that Mary's doing. I was interested to find that you have a background or that we share a background in English. Yes. So, so how does, how does a, someone with a major in English language and literature and a minor in French <laughs> yeah, well, do what you do? So I 
I mean, I've always, I'm sure as you do, I love to read. I've always loved to read. And I think it yep. really comes back to a love of stories. Um, and I think that that, I mean, directing is basically being able to write on the, on the medium of people and using their own experiences in order to write the story you want to tell the audience. So to me, it's intricately related. Um, the other, the other thing that was kind of clear about my college time, which was, uh, spent mostly, let's say 85% in the theater, (laughs) um, (laughs) that I, I tended to shift the balance heavily towards dramatic literature. So I would take Uh classes on Shaw and Chekhov and Ibsen. I would take classes. I took a class on Beckett. I took my, my thesis was a restoration, was a focus on restoration comedy, um, and I ended up directing one of the uh, biggest sort of The Way of the World by William Congreve, which is some consider it to be the first restoration comedy um, as, as my sort of final project. But, um, you know, my parents would say that I slacked during college. <laughs> I would say <laughs> that I used the opportunity to focus on literature that I was very, very interested in. That said, I mean, I read so much still, and I, it, it, you have to, I think, particularly yeah. if you do opera. Um, I don't, I wouldn't trust seeing something that hadn't been fully researched. And by research, I mean reading the, the novels of the time and understanding the cultural landscape that this was emerging from. I think so much of, right. of that work is, and work of, that musicians, classical musicians have too, is to really make, Mahler said this great thing, tradition is about, is about um, maintaining the fire, not keeping the ashes. Yes. And I think to really maintain the fire, I think you got to get into the framework of what the people, what the creators were experiencing at the time. And then I think for the first time in the history of the podcast, Mary turned the tables and asked me a question or two. So has your English background, did you, did you think at the time it was going to be useful to the rest of your career? Uh, my initial reaction would be to say no, but, <laughs> but I, I did, <laughs> but, but I did know at least that it's, um, that it was a, it was a very broad approach with lots of application, yeah, right? So totally. reading and writing. So you're, you know, you're, you're an English teacher. And and English teacher in America is very different than English teacher in China, right? right? So English teacher in America teaches about stream of consciousness and English literature and, you know, we're going to read this book and analyze it and that kind of thing. Whereas English teacher in China is like, these are verbs. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, or, or any number of things. My... Uh, kind of afterwards focus was more on, on foreign language and, and language acquisition and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, seeing now as I live, I live in Asia. Um, but, but I can see, I mean, it makes sense. Like you're saying this fundamental idea of, of, of storytelling and of history and of making that all come to life, obviously is a, is a fundamental part of, of storytelling in any way, especially with opera. But how is it that you approach, um, kind of the musical aspect from the standpoint of, of the, um, the, the management of, you know, the interpretation musically. 
Yeah, well, I am, my weakest sort of thing is music theory. So I always have to sort of cover my bases in terms of research there, because in all of these major pieces, these major operas, you have something really phenomenal and kind of um, uh, paradigm shifting going on musically. Of course, in Otello, that is the idea that, the, that there's no overture. That it just starts right. in to the and in the middle of a storm in medias res. It's so cool, um, but so I have to really I have to really start to to work on what's revolutionary about it. Then what I do is I listen to it. So I listen to it a ton of times, almost to the point sure. where I'm I'm a pretty musical person. I grew up singing um, and wanting to be a singer, so I. Okay. And I can get tunes in my head pretty easily. And with Verdi, it's obviously very easy. Um, yep. I was just doing um, Bluebeard's Castle in, in September and um, oh, wow. Murder. Uh, <laughs> so, but <laughs> it ended up being that I could catch on. You know, you, you keep phrases in your mind. And sure. so I try to get to the point where it really feels kind of almost unconscious. And then I block out the entire thing, I make a staging plan. Um, this is after I have a set, obviously. So the set is like based on instincts I have about the piece and what happens in the story and base and colors I find in the piece. And, um, and then I, and then I can make my staging plan and I, and I block it pretty specifically, um, and put a lot of detail in. I either try to match the music in some way. I usually try to make what's happening in the music occur on stage, um, or I consciously play against the music in some way. Mm-hmm. Either way, what I'm what I'm physically having them do, it, it's intricately bound to the music. Sure. Um, and I also know from my work with singers, which has been in you know the past six years, I've taught at Juilliard, I've taught acting there um, to opera right. singers. Um, that I know what singers can do. And I know when they're singing big passages, I know what is useful and what is not. Um, and I also plan that in so that the singing of the piece, because I think many directors who come to opera from theater don't understand quite, um, the amount of effort it takes to sing, um, specifically in an, in an operatic style. And I think that, um, sometimes movement really helps. Um, and, and if you move them in the right way, if there is movement that flows into the music, that can actually really facilitate a beautiful vocal performance. Um, but I'm always sure. thinking about like acoustically, like, is it good to have them downstage? Is the set going to bounce sound off of it? Is it, how do I make an experience that is both acoustic and, um, event? And I think perhaps some people might not really understand how much goes into preparing an opera and, and the different kind of the division of labor and the things involved. So I tried to ask a question that would maybe kind of make that a little more relatable for people. If an opera were a movie, mm-hmm. then the stage director is the what of the movie? The, the director, the producer, the... Because you're pretty much over, like, one. everything. That's a tough one. I think it's um, I think it's the director and the DP. Like, the director of photography. 
Right. Um, in circumstances like the Otello, you become a little bit of the producer because um, the or- the symphony is not necessarily used to putting on opera. Um, and I do a lot of sure. like that where it's a symphony or some organization that's not of a museum I've worked in, an organization that's not familiar with oh, doing wow. the art form. So it's almost like we're reinventing it for the first time. I really love that, actually. I think it's like if there are... I was going to say that. That sounds like it could be good. Yeah, you get to write your own rules. I mean, it's a little hard because you don't have the infrastructure that an opera company might, but it's also right. they don't have a way of doing things. So you're making it up as you go along, which is cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, movies are really, really different. And I think that's why it's so hard for, um, for to get opera singers on screen and also to get, when you get movie directors, I've seen a lot of shows by film directors and they don't work usually. I mean, it's a very different (laughs) ability. It's I, I don't want to see a stage where pictures are very beautifully set up. I'd rather see a stage that moves, you know, and that moves. Sure. I think, um, I think theater is really, yes, it, or opera is an aesthetic experience for sure. But what I'm really interested in is not a static frame. You know, I really want something. Right. In the immortal words of Jacques Lecoq, that is, the space is moving, the relationships are moving, the whole thing is transforming, you know. And how is that division of power between the stage director and the conductor? Can you, you know, can you actually tell the conductor what to do? Kind of, you know, how you, the relationship between all these kind of people involved to make something that's so, yeah. that's so visceral. Oh, so real. And I, and I think that with con- the, the collaboration with the conductor is a particularly fascinating one because you have to trust the person inherently because whether you like it or not, they are going to be running the pace of the show. And that even more importantly than a stage manager is a conductor because actions have a duration. And if the actions duration is consistent throughout the run, then you can really build, you can really build a scene. If it is consistent or if the conductor, you know, needs focus or something like that, it's much harder um, to work. Um, luckily, Maestro Lou is such, he's so incredible. Um, I mean, all of our rehearsals, all of the shows were very solid. And, um, and, and I mean, solid tempo wise, which is the best compliment anyone can give. Um, <laughs> that nothing changed, that nobody felt like things were changing underneath them and they couldn't catch them. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so, Luckily, I tend to work with conductors who are very excited about drama and excited about human drama. And so they, they, I have never had an experience where a conductor has said, well, what about, you know, what about this? What about that? That just hasn't happened to me yet. I'm sure it will. (laughs) Um, But I have noticed that when you are on the same page as the conductor, the show happens without a hitch. And when you really trust the person, it's, it's so, so it's a luxury. Sure, I have to imagine it would be. Well, it's it's like you like you talked about that representation of of human existence and and things that everyone can relate to. I kind of feel like if because I think the the general average you know human population maybe who hasn't enjoyed an opera mm-hmm. kind of sees it as this. I don't know if you know if it's a, a highfalutin kind of powdered wig fancy. You know what I mean? Right. And and I think if if that person 
any of those people really could could enjoy a good production of even a mediocre work, yeah. if that makes sense. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> then I don't see how you couldn't be engaged and just blown away by by. It as an art form, it is all encompassing. From your mouth to God's ears, Alan, because I feel like I I also agree with you, and I think um, so much of it, so much of the arts is getting that initial exposure in the theater at a young age, and um, being welcome and feeling comfortable. And yep. if that is true, if it's not framed in in a way that, you know, this is exclusive, this is too, this is very hard to understand, this is whatever, then I think not only will the artwork kind of grow from the fact that it's got people, people from all different sort of experience bases uh, interested in it, but also that, that um, the, the audience will understand that it's not supposed to be inaccessible. I think there has been because of the sort of, I, I'm not going to blame it on the the richness of um, thriving opera houses, but I think sure. because there has been kind of a, a you know, a devil may care kind of like, let's do this Regie production of whatever. I think it's really animating to an audience. And I think, I think you have an obligation to make art, particularly in this country where we call all the arts non-for-profit. I think we have an opportunity mm. to make art that merits profit and that merits people wanting to see it too. So I'm a bit of a populist in that. Um, I, I just think it's important. I had a few final questions for Mary, um, specific maybe to those who have never set foot inside a concert hall or an opera house or any kind of, even a theater. Um, and this is the kind of thing, my question and her response was kind of what got me thinking about an idea for a new series that I will be working on. And as you have heard, Mary speaks very eloquently about these things, and I really appreciated her response. For someone who has never been to an opera or even inside a concert hall, what would you have to say to them if we haven't said it already? Ah, okay. I would say I would say that you should take a chance and go to something that you don't understand that you might not understand. And um the best things are that there's delicious food um at intermission always. That's just a general rule. And um at the very, in the very worst case scenario, you'll get kind of an expensive, fabulous nap. Um, but um, in the best case scenario, you will be, your mind will be opened and stimulated. Your heart will be opened. You might understand something about um, the human capacity for, for love or compassion or um, any one of these sort of great, um, hallmark emotions that you didn't understand in the first place. And, and I think, um, I think the biggest thing is to assuage the fears of, um, of, of anybody who doesn't, who thinks they might not like the opera or, you know, even opera people sometimes don't like the opera, but go and, and I promise you something will be opened for you.
And I actually think it's odd you mentioned the word fear, and I wouldn't have thought of that unless you had mentioned it. But I was just talking to same friend today who asked about the um, the projection about listening to new music. I said, like, you know, if you, if you go to a concert, then maybe you 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 burn fifty or sixty bucks or something on a concert ticket, which is actually much cheaper here. But you know, that's that's a that's a risk. But what risk do you have of just listening to music at home? And I don't know what the fear is of someone being at the opera house. Oh, but don't you understand that idea of like I mean I completely empathize with this of you don't go to this place usually. So going to a new place involves so much more like planning and navigation. No, I get I do get and that. It's your it's your free time. So you know, you might blow it by going to something that you don't like, or it might be a tricky situation or a difficult experience. But I think in our lives, um, we only have so much time to kind of explore new things. And it's, it's, it's like the same kind of fear, quote unquote, that you get when you go to a new restaurant. It's like, well, I like it. It's exciting. It's foreign, but, um, super satisfying if it's good. Right. And and at the very least, like you said, expensive nap, burn a couple hours and you walk away. Exactly. And a delicious intermission snack. I can't stress the importance of eating it <laughs> enough. I really think, you know, in the olden days when there were salons for for operas, I think they had it completely right. Walk around a little bit, get some food. I, <laughs> I think that that is the idea of enjoyment is hopefully at the center of what all artists do. And, and it should be, it should be. And, and I have, I, I was, I've just been blown away by, by what I've enjoyed here, especially with, with uh, Otello last this past summer. And we hope to have you again in Taipei. Oh, thank you so much, Alan. I really hope to come back. It was the best. I loved it. And that's pretty much the end of our conversation for the day. Um, do go check out Mary Birnbaum's, website. I'll have her information and specifically a link to some pictures, some photos of the Otello production here in Taipei that are on her website. It was a beautiful staging, really wonderful production, uh, and a lot more information about what she has going on in the future. Like you mentioned to me, you have, you have a very exciting new staging coming up. I do. I do. It's sort of, it's sort of not announced yet. So I'm being kind of subtly, uh, subtly loud about it, but yes. I couldn't talk about all of those things or I couldn't share all of those things that we talked about, but needless to say, uh, she has a lot going on. So go check out where you might be able to see some of her productions coming up in the future. Um, and, uh, for this series that I'm, have already started working on about kind of breaking down barriers for, music and for people who kind of, again, think that the concert hall or the opera house is kind of this elitist group of people and you must be in some esoteric group to understand or appreciate it is a load of crap. And a lot of the things that Mary said in this episode are such good expressions of the fact that anyone can go in and enjoy it with no background and have a really amazing experience. And so uh, we have some wonderful interviews coming up with people about different ways and, and, and aspects of kind of how to invite more people and kind of promote this wonderful art that Mary and my other guests are, are working on doing. So uh, look out for that. Um, again, thanks to Zencaster. Again, also still not a sponsor, but it's the software that I use to produce uh, this podcast. 
And I would love it, and I'm sure my guests would too, if you're enjoying the podcast, then do share. Leave a rating, send me an email, get in touch with me or my guests, because that's what this is all about. So uh, find me on Facebook and on Twitter and at www.fugueforthought.de, fugue, F-U-G-U-E, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Also, one more thing I forgot. Um, the music, the string quartet music that you heard interspersed throughout this episode was Verdi's one and only string quartet. Um, couldn't find bits of the opera that I wanted to use, so we used his one and only string quartet in and out of the piece. Um, again, the music all comes from museopen.org. It's royalty-free, um, and it adds a little extra something. Thank you. See you. Bye-bye.